back once again to the five things I read this week podcast. I'm your host, Zach Schmall. The five things I read this week podcast is a division of entering the public square, a blog founded on the sincere belief that every Christian should understand the importance of discussing Christianity in the marketplace of ideas. You can find us online at enteringthepublicsquare.com. You can also find this podcast on iTunes and in the Google Play Store. And you know what? We have hit double digits. This is episode 10. That's pretty crazy. Time flies when you're having fun. And since we're looking at five articles each week, that means we're hitting our 50th article this week. So we've read a lot, we've talked about a lot, and I hope you've enjoyed it. I, I had to have fun doing this. I like the podcast, I like to talk to you. I hope you kind of enjoy listening to me, or at least enjoy coming to the website and checking out the five articles I, uh, I've highlighted for you. There's some great stuff written every week, some interesting things to think about that have major implications for the way that we as Christians ought to view the world. So, without any further ado, let's dive right in here, shall we? So, my first article, it, it may seem like an odd choice. Um, it's from the Daily Wire, and it's entitled, Everyday Objects. Tiffany & Co. selling $9,000 ball of yarn, $1,500 coffee hand. It was written on November 7th by Joseph Curl. And... So this article is mainly just a, a news report, if you will, talking about some new products that are being released by Tiffany & Co. Um, and it's part of their everyday objects collection. So they have a ball of yarn made of pure silver. And the quote says, Here, we've reimagined an everyday yarn ball in hand-spun strands of textured sterling silver rendering the ordinary extraordinary. So, then we have a copy hand. The Everyday Objects Collection transforms the utilitarian items into handcrafted works of art. This classic copy hand gets a Tiffany twist in sterling silver. So, I chose this article, and no, I didn't choose it, to smash the free market. I do believe in supply and demand, and clearly, someone's willing to pay for this. That's why they're selling it at the price they are. So I didn't choose this to say, look how evil capitalism is. I chose this, article because there really is a matter of perspective, I think, we need to take in mind here. So there are people out there in the world who have $9,000 to throw a sterling silver ball of yarn. Maybe they really want to put it on their mantle, which would be strange. But, you know, maybe they really want to, and they have the ability to do that because they have the financial resources. Um, now, the question is, how do we function in a world with this kind of disparity. I mean, I know I don't have this kind of money, and I know I'm a lot more fortunate than a lot of people in the world. Um, so I doubt a lot of people have money to throw into a $9,000 ball of yarn that's not even used as yarn. It's a decoration. 
made the silver, made the look like a ball of yarn, so that you can pretend to have everyday objects decorating your house that really are not everyday objects. And so as as we start here, I think one thing we need to realize, first of all, about our world, and this is a theme you'll notice a lot today, there's a lot of change and there's also a lot of stability. Clearly, there's always going to be financial differences between people. There are the rich and the poor. We've seen that throughout history. Even when you take the places that say, oh, you know, we're going to let the state control everything and everyone will be on the level playing field, it really doesn't work out that way a lot. There's always people who have more and always people who have less. And not even it was beyond finances. Um, I don't have a whole lot of physical ability. Some people are tremendous athletes. Some people are really smart. Some people aren't so much. There's a lot of inequality that we see in our world all the time. And when we think about this, there's a few reactions we can take. Number one, we can rage against the world that it's unfair. And sometimes it is. Sometimes there are systemic things that hold people down. I mean, that's no secret. If the government sets all the rules and the government decides that, hey, we want to have everything for ourselves, then you have virtually a totalitarian state where there's a really tiny class of rich people favored by those in power with the military behind them. And you have everybody else who has nothing. So, when we think about these differences and our differences um, between each of us, what's our reaction to difference? Because that's what can change. The differences in the world, that happens. There's change. There are things that are not the same. But how do we react? And I think as Christians, we need to remember that, yeah, it is kind of ridiculous that some people might buy, you know, a $9,000 ball of yarn. I, I think that is kind of ridiculous. But is that a cause for me as a Christian to get bitter? Is that a cause for me to all of a sudden say, oh man, I hate that person? No, I mean... Absolutely not. As a Christian, I need to keep in perspective that my treasure isn't here on earth. And even though I might be blessed with things, and I know I am, I'm not denying that at all. But even though I might not be the richest man in the world, that's not what I'm on mission to do. That's not why I'm here. If we think about the idea of then this article of people who have all of this excess resources, they also perhaps have a mission that they're on. And plenty of really rich people are Christians. So again, they need to keep their focus on their mission as well and not get too wrapped up in having stuff where people who are poor, they need to remain on mission and remember that their mission isn't 
to be bitter about anyone else. We're all on a mission as Christians to follow Christ as best we can, wherever we're at. And remember that everything temporal is going to pass away. Our true treasure lies in heaven, whether we have a little here on earth or we have a lot here on earth. That's not what we're on mission to do. We could be in that totalitarian country I alluded to earlier, and we could be in the poorest of the poor situations where the government stockpiling everything and not giving anything to the people. We're still on mission if we're Christians. We cannot get away from that, and that's the stable part. So we have the changing scenarios, but we have that stability. We need to have that stability as Christians. If we don't, we're not going to be doing what we're supposed to do. So again, this article is from the Daily Wire on November 7th. It's called Everyday Objects. Tiffany & Co. is selling $9,000 ball of yarn, $1,500 coffee can. It was written by Joseph Curl. So now moving on to another kind of contrast between change and stability. This one was on The Federalist, also on November 7th, written by Jessica Burke. Why we still love Agatha Christie's Murder on the Orient Express 40 years after her death. On November 10th, this new movie entered theaters. So that's where the, the theme of the article comes from, obviously. Um, but Jessica Burke writes... You know, what, what is it about the staying power of the murder on the Orient Express? What, what makes people want to continue to hold true? And yeah, and there's change. 40 years is a long time. A lot has changed in the 40 years since Agatha Christie died. The world is a different place than it was in, what would that be, 1977? Clearly a lot's changed. So... What, what's that stable part that holds on? What's the stability that we need to keep in mind? And Burke highlights something um, about Agatha Christie's work, citing an essay by Angelina Stanford. Christie's stories have provided justice and meaning for audiences since her first readers discovered her detective tales right after World War One. We all need something to escape into at a time when everything seems to be spinning out of control, where randomness and chaos unpredictably reign. A mystery novel offers its readers the great comfort of a predictable pattern, one that we deeply long for even while we are tempted to mock it. The reader knows the author will present all the relevant facts at the beginning of the story and withhold nothing from the reader. So we're in these world situations where, I mean, let's face it, our world is a pretty chaotic place. There's a lot of fear. There's a lot of trepidation. There's a lot of questions as to what's true, what's not true. Am I seeing fake news on TV? Can I trust my politician? Can I trust the media? Can I trust anybody? Can I trust myself? All these questions are, you know, in our heads all the time. And 
Burke is suggesting through this quote from Angelina Stanford that, you know, maybe that's what's so powerful about a mystery. It gives us a sense of stability that we know there are some things that are true. In the story, when you see a fact, that fact isn't going to change. Why? Because it's in print and the story relies on it. There's a predictable pattern and we want a pattern. We want a pattern in our lives. That's why people are so nervous in this climate of chaos. It's not because necessarily anything bad has happened to you already, but you don't know what bad might happen to you. You don't know the randomness and the chaos. You don't know what's going to happen. So, we want this world where everything is laid out so we can play along, figure out the clues, and you know what, at the end we're going to find justice. And we all long for that. It's kind of like when you're watching the news and somebody gets out on bail and you really don't think they should get out on bail because of whatever crime they've committed. You have that sense of justice. It's something that justice wasn't served that something more should have been done to make it right, to kind of reconcile the evil that someone did. And mystery novels provide that, and that's what fascinated me about this article. The rest of the article does talk about the character of Hercule Perot, and it talks about the, uh, the fact that mysteries force us to deal with clues and to focus in a way that we aren't very comfortable doing in the digital age, but I think this first part is really the most important. That mysteries provide something human. They provide for this longing that we want to see the bad guy get caught by the good guy. I want Poirot to solve the case. Why do I want him to do it? Because I want him to bring that bad guy to justice. Because he deserves justice. He messed up, he did something wrong, now he has to pay for it. It's not so much a vengeance issue, it's just to make it right in the long term. And so as, you know, if you go see Murder on the Orient Express, maybe think about that. I haven't seen it. Um, I, I'll probably, if it comes out on Netflix, I'll probably watch it someday. But we need to Keep this in mind, yeah, we're in this world full of change and chaos, but there is something stable. There are these human impulses. And I would suggest there are God-given impulses. I think we are created by God to want justice. Do we always apply it accurately? No. I know that. I know we mess up. We all know we mess up. Something rather obvious about humanity is that it's far from perfect. However, we want people to be good. We want people to do what's right. We want to do what's right ourselves. So as we consider this, I, I would suggest that you give this article a read from Jessica Burke on November 7th, 2017 on The Federalist, entitled, Why We Still Love Agatha Christie's Murder on the Orient Express 40 Years After Her Death. And again, keep in mind the thought of change and chaos, but then the stability and the themes that shine through that we want. We want justice. We want a pattern.
which actually leads us on to another kind of interesting article. It's from this time, Intellectual Takeout, which is quickly becoming one of my favorite news sources for this podcast, if you haven't noticed. But it's called, Do Americans Shame Too Much or Not Enough? It was written by Peter Stearns, also on November 7th. That was the day for news. That was a good uh, batch of articles coming out on that Tuesday. So this article basically talks about how in the past, shame was a big deal. If you did something wrong, you were put in the stockade. Why were you put in the stockade? So that people would see you and you would be embarrassed that people saw you being punished for what you did wrong. Now, the problem is we have kind of different definitions of shame today. The, the author mentions when the dentist, Walter Palmer, shot Cecil the lion. And the author fully admits that, yeah, it was bad judgment, but does that justify the fact that the man had his wife and daughter threatened as a result of his actions? They talk about how in colonial America, uh, the the kind of uh, the purpose of shame was to quote it was to embed quote a deep belief in the importance of conformity to community stability so if you do something bad we're going to shame you for breaking the rule. If you violate our community standards, then we're going to say, you know what, you need to pay for what you've done. But notice, it's not a permanent thing. If you were put in the stockade, you were let out of the stockade once you did your, your time. If shame, it has the effect that shame can demoralize people or generate aggression because they can make individuals feel bad about themselves. So, the problem is if people are beginning to feel shame and they have shame heaped upon them, then we have to think about what the author, Stearns, mentions. He says, society had do a better job defining what deserves to be shamed while also setting limits. As American community life has atrophied, disability seems to have weakened. We certainly have, or we certainly seem to have lost the knack available in more shame-based societies of helping people recover from shame and become reintegrated into society. And that's the problem, right? 
right there. I mentioned that dentist who shot the lion. Yes, he deserved to get in trouble for that. He did something he should not have done. But how do we help bring him back into the community to kind of not, not have to be an outhouse forever? How do we help him kind of Okay, look, what you did wrong, here's your punishment. Now, we can move on and move forward. We don't help people recover from shame. Instead, we pile on, we bury them down. And sometimes, it's okay to be shamed. Like, consider, if there's a really bad rule, and I break the rule, then maybe I do that with full knowledge that whoever's in power might want to shame me, but you know what? It's worth that shame (coughs) to stand up for what's right. As the author writes here, the unruly contemporary history of American shame more readily suggests problems than solutions. The country has lost both their comfortable reliance on shame and the confident resistance to it. <coughs> Sorry about that. <coughs> so, there's a balance. Shame helps people remain in line. We don't want to do something that's frowned upon by our society. I hit that. And that makes sense, right? If we have a view of that which is good and say we have a law and it's good to conform with that law and if you break it, you should be ashamed of yourself. That's healthy. At the same time, do you always need to fit into the mold? Certainly not. Sometimes, the mold isn't right. Sometimes, everyone says one thing, and they're all wrong. We have freedom of conscience and freedom of belief. So there's this interesting balance, again, coming back to this idea of change and stability. Shame serves in both directions. It can help with stability. We shame people into sticking with the status quo. Look what you did, you broke the rule. Now we're going to shame you. At the same time, shame can help bring about much resisting shame and not caring about it can help bring about much needed change. And sometimes even you can then reverse the shame on the system the way it is. So I think about the slave trade. When many abolitionists were talking about slavery, they spun it and shined the light of shame on the people who were embedded in the establishment. So again, this fits into our theme tonight of 
change and stability and shame plays a huge part in that. So this is at, it's a really interesting article. I'd recommend it, obviously, or I wouldn't be talking about it. But it was from Intellectual Takeout. Do Americans shame too much or not enough? Written by Peter Stearns, also on November 7th. Now, this is a slightly older article. Not really that old, but it was a few days before. I saw it last weekend, but I'd already recorded the, uh, the podcast for last week. So I thought, well, I'll, you know, save it for another episode because I really wanted to talk about it. Um, and it was in the Atlantic. And of course, um, as with anything in the Atlantic, it's rather, uh, rather lengthy, shall we say. But it's an article that talks about Reed College. And I don't know if you're overly familiar with Reed. I, I wasn't super familiar with the college in and of itself. Um, but what you need to know about Reed College is that it is a, uh, a pretty liberal place. It's a pretty, uh, there's a strong bent towards, uh, well, it's in Portland, so that probably tells you something. Um, but the article itself, and if my computer would unfreeze, I would read you some quotes from it, but The article itself talks about how in there's an interest in humanities class at Reed College. And this traditionally has been based on great books of the Western world. And it it's a pretty liberal place, like I said. So, the, it's not as if this is necessarily um, embracing everything that was taught. Yeah, in the, it's more of a critical perspective, it sounds like, from the article. And by the way, now that my computer has unfrozen, uh, the article is entitled, The Surprising Revolt at the Most Liberal College in the Country. It was written by Chris Bodner on November 2nd, so just over a week ago. So, they have this Intro to Humanities class. Um, it's a year-long required for all freshmen. Lectures that everyone attends with breakout sessions. And the author says, it's the heart of the academic experience at Reed. It, the horse is intended to train students whose primary goal is to engage in 
original open-ended critical inquiry. Unfortunately, there was a group that decided this wasn't acceptable. It's called Reasons Against Racism, RAR. Um, and they see this class as oppression. They said, we believe that the first lesson that freshmen should learn about Humanities 110, that's that freshman seminar, is that it perpetuates white supremacy by centering whiteness as the only required class at read. The text that may help the syllabus from the ancient Mediterranean, Mesopotamian, Persia, and Egypt, or Egyptian regions, are Eurocentric, Caucasoid, and thus oppressive. RAR leaders have stated, Humanities, feels, Humanities 110 feels like a whole test for students of color. One leader remarked on public radio, it traumatized my peers. So, that's how they feel about this class, which again is taught at a very liberal college by presumably very liberal faculty, although the article doesn't go into that. But again, the college is as liberal as its faculty. So this group, RAR, decided what they were going to do is basically protest every single lecture of the Sawyer. Beginning on Boycott Day, um, which was mourning the deaths of black Americans at the hands of police, they decided we need to protest this class that um, perpetuates the, I guess, white supremacy, the oppression of reading the great books of Western culture. So when these students, they've disrupted over 60 different lectures of Humanities 110. Up to several dozen RAR supporters position themselves alongside the professor and quietly hold signs that I'm not going to read because not all of them are appropriate. Um, and so now you have all these people just protesting in the middle of the lecture hall which is uncomfortable for faculty and it's intimidating. There are some faculty members who have requested that the protesters not come. One particular one was Lucia Martinez Valdivia. Valdivia? I'm sorry if I mispronounced that. But she had PTSD, so it was um, somewhat traumatic for her to have all these protesters surrounding her at the front of the classroom. Um, but these protests keep going over 60 times. And they've created a culture on college campus then where people are terrified really to speak up. They don't want to get shamed and shouted down and trashed for saying, look, we actually want to talk about our humanities class.
one student uh, drafted a Facebook comment about this, and it's anonymous, but it says one student drafted a comment but deleted it because I realized it wasn't worth the risk of having basically 80% of my social circle vilify me for my opinion on an honestly relatively minor issue. Another student wrote to Laura, a student mentioned earlier in this article, in a private message. I'm humming into this as a person of color, but I disagree with everything RAR has been saying for a long time, and it feels like it isn't safe for anyone to express anything that is against what they're saying. So basically, they've created the oppressive culture they say everyone else is imposing on them. They've made a culture where it isn't, um, people feel like their entire, um, ability to think on their own is being suppressed because they don't want to be either shouted down or attacked or called names by this group that basically is taking over the campus. Um, now, the article did mention that this year, RAR seems to be collapsing a little bit. It, they haven't really protested as much because they've been barred from lectures. <laughs> um, and the syllabus really hasn't changed at all. Um, because these books are important for understanding the culture. That's, that's the, uh, the bottom line, really. If, if students really want to, you know, learn these great ideas, and it's not that they even have to embrace them all. Again, this is a pretty liberal college. So I have a feeling they're pretty critical of a lot of the traditional views of Western society. They, I'm assuming they're challenging and not just accepting, which is great. Um, you know, challenge ideas, choose the best ones, hold on to them, reject the other ones. It sounds like a pretty uh, thought-provoking way to go about it, and you aren't going to be able to understand the culture in which we're operating if you don't read these texts. I'm in a PhD program right now working on the great books. And as we read the great books, no, I don't agree with everything I read. Uh, this past week, I read Nietzsche. And Nietzsche's a brilliant writer. Do I accept everything Nietzsche said? Absolutely not. Should I understand Nietzsche, though? Yes, I should. Because he's a highly influential figure in the development of the Western world. And that's what it sounds like Reed College tries to do. They introduce students to classic works of literature. Why do they do that? So the students understand the culture they're in. Only once you understand it and you pick it apart, find the witnesses and make it better. Unfortunately, it seems like 
some other students, RIR, doesn't really appreciate that. They feel like teaching these books is actually oppression in and of itself. And that just doesn't seem to be the case. So I would recommend you check out this article. Again, the idea of change. There's a lot of fluctuation. There's a lot of question about how do we handle these issues? How do we talk about these ideas that some people really uh, feel passionately about? How do we deal with all the chaos? I mean, I never had protesters mob my classes in college. That just didn't happen. Um, but the world's changing. And if the world indeed is changing, what's stable? Well, I would hope the idea that we can explore ideas, talk about ideas, like what we hear about here at Reed, they're trying to look at these texts and talk about them and as part of the freshman experience. Now, I probably wouldn't agree with a lot of the interpretations that these students or faculty come up with, but the point that they're thinking and talking about them is the same thing I would like to do. I like to think and talk about ideas too. Maybe even with these students, the ones who are really in the class, because these are things I like to talk about too. But it's a shame that there are some people who don't quite understand um, and don't quite appreciate that classic Western value. Because if we lose that, I really think our governmental system is doomed. If we can't talk to each other and talk about difficult ideas, I hate to see what happens when you know, we, we can't talk. That's frightening. So this article end was from the Atlantic called The Surprising Revolt at the Most Liberal College in the Country, written by Chris Bodner on November 2nd, 2017. Finally, we come to Article 5, and it's from First Things, called Our Secular Theodicy by Matthew Rose. It's actually from the December 2017 edition, but it's on the internet already. So this article um, by Rose, he talks about a, a writer I hadn't heard of named Ernst Bloch. And Bloch, according to Rose, the author, illustrates someone who we would consider nowadays to basically be the what Rose says is, quote, the concealed theology of contemporary liberalism, whose outlet remains profoundly, if paradoxically, biblical in one respect. Having rejected a Christian understanding of nature, it retains an intensely Christian understanding of history. It sees human history as goal-oriented and our advancement as a series of conversions and liberations, the outcome of which is the creation of a community to him redeem our fallen history. Now, this is clearly a biblical idea, right? So we're advancing towards our conformity to Christ. That's, we're all on that journey to be more like him. That's a very Christian idea. 
and we're doing that together. We're creating a community of fellow believers in the church. We come together. And ultimately, we try to find our way to the goal. Now, that's also a pretty uh, popular view in many secular and particularly liberal wings that we're working towards the goal. We are. We want people to be happy and to do what they want. And if the thing is, there is a hole, but why is that the hole? That's the question that Blot needs to be able to answer. And also, any contemporary thinker who argues this type of position that we're advancing towards something good, the question is always going to come back to, why is that good? Why should I reach for that thing? Why should I reach for peace on earth? Why should I reach towards peace in the Middle East? If you do it because it's good, well, that's kind of circular. I should do it because I don't want people hurt. Sure, that's reasonable. I hear that. Um, but the goal that we're nice to each other, if that's our ultimate um, target, I think we're going to be disappointed. Rose himself writes, Human hopes now depend not upon the existence of God, but on the existence of contemporary liberalism. Far from being a breaker of spells, Ernst Bloch, too, lived his life under this, the oldest of all spells, the belief that we can be like gods. Man, that's powerful. But let's just think about that really quickly. If we can be like gods, then, of course, it's worth reaching towards peace on earth. Why? Well, because we can do it. We can do anything. If we can do anything, then there's really no place for God. We don't really need him. We can survive on our own. We can do our own thing. Now, if if we place our hopes in something that's temporary, our human lives are temporary, and even our own stretches of goodness are temporary, I might be doing great today, but I could do something bad tomorrow. I could do something bad later tonight. I, I hope not. But as we think about this kind of human hope and this idea that we have kind of a... Well, Rose calls it a theology that... There's a goal, and we're working towards a goal. 
then we really we have two options really. We're working towards the goal that God set or the goal that we set. And if we're working towards the one that we set, the question of course is why is the way you said it any different than the way I said it? Why is your way more valid than mine? If we're working towards the way God said it, then there's the objective truth we can reach towards. And so I, this is a long article, and we're already way over time. I don't want to draw you out anymore. I'm sorry about that. But the article is called Our Secular Theodicy by Matthew Rose. It's in First Things. It's a December 2017 issue that hasn't been, obviously it's not December yet, but you should check that anyway. Thank you all for coming back again for another ride on the five things that I read this week podcast. I'll be back next week for episode 11, and until then, have a great week.